I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments in my journey towards writing a book about imagination. Although the inquiry at the heart of my research on imagination is framed around the idea that we are experiencing a decline in our collective imagination, not everyone I've interviewed agrees. Marjorie Taylor is a professor of psychology at the University of Oregon and author of Imaginary Companions and the Children Who Create Them and editor of the Oxford Book of the Development of Imagination. She researches the development of imagination and creativity, in particular on childhood imaginary friends and also the relationships that adult fiction writers develop with the characters in their novels. Much of her work is conducted in the beautifully named Imagination Lab. She's on the editorial boards of the journals Imagination, Cognition and Personality and the American Journal of Play. I started by asking Marjorie how she would assess the state of health of our collective imagination in 2018. I think it's brilliant. (laughs) I think there are so many opportunities for engaging in imaginative activities that, um, that everybody takes advantage of, including adults as well as children. So sometimes people worry about children's imagination being kind of um, not as well developed because of all the fantasy material they're presented with and all the scheduled time they have, but I haven't seen any decline at all in the years that I've been interviewing children. Okay. Um, uh, um, so what, what for you is imagination and how is it different from creativity? I think of imagination very broadly. Uh, I think of it as the capacity to transcend our current time, place, and or circumstance. So that includes things that maybe some people wouldn't consider imaginative activities, like thinking about mulling over the past. Uh, Whenever your mind sort of travels to a different place, I think that that is using your imagination as a tool. Um, In creativity, I... Uh, restrict to coming up with things that are novel, that um, novel for you, uh, and that's different than you know, like I. So uh, sorry, I'm not being very articulate. Um, so I see imagination broadly and creativity being a part of that when you are coming up with something that's novel and appropriate for a particular purpose. Or imagination can be um, really thinking about the future, thinking about the past, mulling over um, things that are going on, uh, reliving certain, um, or pre-living certain conversations, all those sorts of things, as well as the activities that we often more sort of standardly think of as imaginative, like pretend play. Um, Are children more imaginative than adults? A lot of people think so. Uh, I'm not so sure. I think that we children do pretend a lot. So for some children, it's almost uh, you know twenty four seven activity, uh, and adults do that less so. But they are using their imagination when they are uh, engaging in all kinds of fictional activities like. Um, you know, reading novels and thinking about novels and movies and all these things. Um, and and also, coming, imagination is used uh, when you are at work, when you're envisioning your book, for example, or, um, or at home trying to figure out uh, how to make your check, uh, your money, last until the end of the month. All these things involve imagination. Children are 
they do have some differences in that they are not sort of um, evaluating as they go along the way adults do. They don't have the inner critic that adults have. And so they can just really be free to explore their imagination without uh, sort of evaluating it as they go along. Is it possible to measure how imaginative person A is in relation to person B and person C? And is there any value in doing that? That's a really good question. And uh, measurement issues are, are huge for you know, pretty much any area, but imagination, first of all, you have to define it and agree on a definition. And then uh, measurement, I mean, the way we look at it in the lab is we interview children about imaginative activities, and we interview their parents, and we cross-check trying to figure out if, you know, what the children are telling us is something that reflects their everyday activities as opposed to something they make up on the spot. But, you know, putting a number on imagination, that's a tricky business. But are there, are there different ways that people have been trying to do that? What's the sort of state of play with yeah, that? People have been measuring creativity for decades, you know, and a lot of times, uh, the measurement of creativity boils down to a question like, how many things can you think of to do with a brick? And and then you come up with all these different things and you're evaluated on how unique the, those uh, responses are um, and how many responses you come up with. So the sort of fluidity of your ability to come up with responses to that question and your ability to come up with something that other people don't come up with something that's unique. But whether, and, and that measurement, it, people's responses to that un unusual uses test does correlate with other things related to creativity. On the other hand, it always makes me uncomfortable to say that is our score and that test is, you know, a measurement of creative, that's how creative you are. The, there was the work that, um... Kung Hee Kim did a while ago that was published as the creativity crisis where she suggested that the using the Torrance test data going back to the 70s that actually we were seeing a decline in creativity and imagination do, do what what was your thoughts on that piece of research uh I actually haven't read it so I okay. can't really comment on it okay okay um uh are we driving play out of kids' lives? And, and uh, what kind of adults do we produce when we do that? Well, children do have to have time to play. And we do schedule them up these days. I mean, some kids go from one lesson to the next lesson to the next. And when they are... Uh, when they have free time, they immediately look at a screen of some sort um, and start, you know, watching a video or something like that. So children do have to have some free time when they can use their imagination. And uh, one might argue that free time to just, you know, do anything uh, is a rare commodity. But like I said, I have not seen a decline in, in children's either uh, when we just look at imaginary companions, either how many children have them, or in the, just the, the creative things that children come up with uh, when they are describing their pretend friends. 
Also, we've been doing research with older kids, with um, eight to 10 year olds, looking at the creation of an imaginary world, which is referred to as paracosm. And we've been astounded by the, you know, the creativity and what children are coming up with. So I think, you know, looking at somebody's score on the unusual uses test, the Torrance test or something, um, I don't know why, you know, if it's true that those scores are declining, uh, I don't see a decline in creativity in my lab, let's put it that way. And the kinds of tests that we use, um, I'm sort of going back, sorry, I'm going back to your previous question. Yes, okay. Um, uh, we think that there's um, a real difference between uh, being able to, thinking of purposes for ma manipulating the physical world and thinking of the social world and uh, being creative in that realm. And so we often use tests that involve people. So thinking of how would the world be different if people had tails, that kind of thing. Or, um, I mean, that's a, a question that we ask kids. And, or we start a story with two people and ask the children to finish it and see how creative their responses are. And that's a really, we found that there often can be no relationship between children's responses to those kinds of questions and the question of how many how many purposes things can you do with the brick so i think you know creativity is it's probably somewhat domain specific uh, although i think there may be some domain general stuff going on too it's very complex it depends what you're thinking about um what you know what your interests are you know you can be very creative within a particular interest which may not be about you know how to use a brick mm. um, so going back to oh, the question about adults um, what what was the question about adults? What kind of adults? Well, what kind of adults do we produce if 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 as if as children we don't get to, to play and be imaginative as children? What kind of adults do we produce? You know, we are children are going to play and be imaginative. That's just who they are. That's who people are. That's you know, like a world in which children don't have an imagination. I just can't even you know. It's it's uh, even in situations where it's they are less um uh supported in play they still do it and uh there may be some cultures uh, i have some friends who work um in different cultures and they say there can be a lot less play in certain cultures uh, and that may be true but in general children pretend they they they're so inclined to do this from a, such an early age like even when they are two years old they start you know they're trying to learn about the real world right you think they really be focused on that yet they are imagining you know a little dolphin that they pick up off a rug and carry around with them or they pretend to go to sleep when they are not sleepy and smile at their mother i mean they just they're constantly doing things and pretending about things that aren't there even though you would think the job of early childhood is to learn about the real world so it's just a very fundamental thing. And look at how adults are so engaged in fiction. You know, that's whole part of the imaginary, um, imaginative realm. And, and you know, all, when we think about all the novels we read, the movies we go to, and how highly valued those are, um, you know, just in terms of the paychecks that are given to people who engage in, um, that write and, and act, um, it's just 
there's a lot of fantasy material in our lives. And so I don't get this kind of decline. I also think that online, there are activities online that are increasingly a different way for children to engage in, in fantasy. Um, I mean, you look at all the video games, some of them are just shoot them up, but a lot of them do have a fantasy component, and there's a lot of imaginative activities that are going on online. And actually, uh, one of my uh, former students, Naomi Aguiar, has been trying to figure out how children think about the entities they meet online. So you meet a, a not necessarily an avatar because you're controlling that, but you meet, um, you know, a, a, a virtual dog or something online. How do you conceptualize that entity and what are, how can you, how do you see that in terms of a, a relationship that you might have with, an online character that is controlled by um, artificial intelligence. So, I mean, there's a lot of new activities that are involving imaginative act, you know, imagination that children are engaging in, children and adults. And so what's an imagination lab? What goes on in an imagination lab? <laughs> well, um, our bread and butter is talking to children about their imaginary friends because it's something that we became obsessed with know 20 years ago 25 years ago now uh, when we realized that just basic questions about imaginary companions weren't well answered like how many kids have them what are the imaginary friends like what are the children like what's the developmental course what's related to and uh, so children you know we advertise uh, and phone people based upon birth records and they uh, People bring their ch children to um, our lab, and then we um, interview the parent, interview the child in different rooms, and we just ask them, you know, questions about, you know, uh, you know, say something like, um, some friends um, are real, like the children who live on your street, the ones you play with, and some friends are pretend friends, ones that are make believe that you pretend are real. Do you have a pretend friend? And we just see what they say, and then we ask them questions about it, and we ask the parent and then we cross-check the information and uh, follow up with both the parent and the child to make sure that we're you know all on the same page so sometimes the child will say yes I have a pretend friend named Joel and the parent will say um, no she doesn't have a pretend friend so we ask well do you know anybody named Joel who's Joel because sometimes children might tell us about a real friend or or you know something like that or if the um, parent says, yeah, she has a, a pretend friend named Olivia, and the child says, no, I don't have a pretend friend. We might ask the, the parent, well, why is she saying no? And, and the parent, in that case, said, well, actually, she calls it her ghost sister, not a pretend friend. So she might be confused about, you know, the terminology. So we go back and ask the child, do you have a ghost sister? And she says, oh, yes, that's Olivia, my, my ghost sister. She's just like me. She's just, you know, the same size as me, etc." Um so we do that, and then we give children lots of different kinds of tasks. Um, some just to take a look at their vocabulary development or their inhibitory control. Um, other, but a lot of them on creativity, uh, asking them to complete stories, asking them um, questions like, you know, how would the world be different if people had tails? Um, other kinds of, we get them to make collages. We do a lot of things like that to get, get a sense of how easy is it for them to generate content. 
So some another test we've used is we've given them we give them a play phone and say, okay, this is a play phone, and can you pretend to call a friend of yours? Now, not not a real not a pretend friend, actually a real friend, because we want everybody, not just kids who have pretend friends, to do this. And then we look at how easy is it for them to just get on the phone and start talking. And some kids, you know, they immediately do that. They get on there and say, hi, can you come to my birthday party? It's Saturday, and oh, this is what I want, and I love you, and, you know, that kind of thing. And other kids will go, uh, she's not home. <laughs> she will answer the phone, or, you know, that kind of thing. It's harder for them to come up with content, or they'll just say, hi, how are you, goodbye. Um, so we look at all those things and try to get a sense of what's going on with the children. Uh, and lately we've been interviewing kids about their pretend worlds, which is a, uh, a kind of a difficult job because the pretend worlds have often been worked on for years. And so there's a lot of detail there. And also they're very idiosyncratic. So uh, getting to the right information, if you ask too many questions that aren't relevant to a particular world, you're going to lose the child. So we, we show them a, a big list of all the different things that some children have talked about with respect to their paracosm, their imaginary world, and see which ones um, are important for your world. So for some kids, language is really important. They've come up with a new language for their, in their world. And for other kids, that's not something that they're interested in. They are more interested in, I don't know, interplanetary travel or religion or geography or, you know, something like that. So then we ask the kids to tell us about their imaginary worlds, and it's um, just amazing to see what they they do. And often in the with the paracosm work, it's really pretty basic. We're just, how many kids have them? Because these are really a lot of, like... For example, Bixia, a imaginary world that uh, we interviewed a, a boy about, it just had so much detail. It had its own religion, its own geography. Its, um, the in inhabitants were soldier cats, and the god was Ot, a, um, a horse named Ot. So um, cruelty to horses was punishable by death or torture on Bixia. And it also had, you know, like... Um, he spent a lot of time thinking about the currency and the history is set in the 1940s and you know, it goes, goes on and on and on the detail of um, just imagining this other world and so we document that um, that's we have a good time <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, this is a, a question I've been wondering about for a while so is uh, is hit was Hitler uh, a very imaginative person is is imagination something that's value neutral and you can have a hideously ghastly imagination or a deeply altruistic one or is it that you uh, like i was uh, read a bit recently by vygotsky about imagination where he said untrammeled it can lead us down dangerous paths or is it that imagination is a good thing but we have people who are damaged and people who are traumatized and then it gets distorted through that kind of a lens. It's just, it's a fundamental part of human thought. It's absolutely fundamental to human thought. So, um, you know, it's not inherently, what you do with it is not inherently good. It's just the way, you know, it's, uh, it can be, you know, you can be very imaginative in the way you murder people, you know. So, 
it's it's I don't think of it. It's just who we are. Okay. Um uh I was reading a thing recently about Snapchat and this uh idea that more and more people sort of communicate just by sending each other pictures and with emojis and stuff. Do you think there are impacts on our imagination if we as we move away from the written word does it impact at all do we lose something if we move away from from the written word that's an interesting question i mean people are always worried about what's going to happen with new technology people worried about when books were created when people started to read that they wouldn't their memories would you know that that would be bad so with snapchat um there's a tethering that happens. It's a sense of of being connected, having this um, sense of yourself as being so connected to your friends wherever they are. And I think that Snapchat and other technologies like that really uh, promote that. Sherry Turkle has worried about you know, what that means for imagination and has maybe um, a darker view of of what what's going to happen there than I do. Uh, what was her name? Sure. What was her name again? Sorry. Sherry Turkle. Um, she's uh, someone that you might want to talk to, or at least take a look at her work. She talks a lot about uh, technology and how it affects imagination. How do you spell? How do you spell her name? Uh, T U R K L E. Sherry Turkle. Okay. Okay. And. Um, I read an article yesterday by a guy called Henry Giroux where he he talked about he uh, the Trump disimagination machine, which I thought was quite an interesting way of looking at it. Um, uh, do you, if you were if you had been elected the president in November, and you had run on a on a platform of make America imaginative again rather than make America great again, that your that your priority was to maximize was to make. Uh, everyone in the country as imaginative as they could possibly be. What would you do in your first hundred days in office? Well, I'd focus on children, early childhood, that's for sure. Um, I guess just uh, make it America imaginative again. <laughs> I think we are imaginative. <laughs> um, I that's, you know, that's a crazy question. Right? So, so, so if we are... Uh, I, could, I could think that, you know, for me, I, I would like to see uh, lots of emphasis on early childhood education, lots of emphasis on um, promoting the development of young children and making it so that they have, that parents have access to good daycare, that there's good um, parental leave policies that... Uh, that children aren't being fed, that you know that they're not hungry in school. Those things, I mean, if you're hungry, that's that's not a good way to go through the day, and that's not a good way to learn. So, uh, that would be what I would focus on if I was president. But, okay. you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess I mean so I was, the reason I asked that question is is it is it strikes me that you know we have. Uh, in an issue like climate change, for example, you know we have these massive challenges where where the solutions 
come from our being able to imagine something other than business as usual, come from us being able to imagine something other than what is in front of us. Uh, but it it strikes me through through the kind of work that I do is is that actually you know all the solutions that we need are there. The problem is as a culture we seem unable to imagine uh, that as a as a future as a possibility. Um, and you know things like, but I suppose particularly around climate change, you know there is all the solutions are there, but we struggle to imagine something other than what's in front of us. But something other than what's in front of us is really the only way we're going to survive uh, yeah. and make yeah. it through that. So, so why is it as a collectively as a, as a as a culture we seem unable to imagine anything other than what we have in front of us in relation to that question? I don't think that's true. I think there's a very paranoid view of the world that's being imagined in the White House. Um, so it's it's they're not talking about climate change. They're talking talking about all kinds of other things that they imagine that uh, I don't think are true. So it's it's you know it's one of these things where um, it's the content of the imagination that you're concerned about rather than the ability to imagine I, that I would say. Um, and in terms of but but what you are talking about with climate change another way to support um, that as president, I would support science, the development of scientists and, and the ability to support helping people come up with new and exciting ways to address the challenges that we all face, like climate change. Mm -hmm.